Hey everybody, welcome to the premiere episode of Shack News Dev Chat, where we talk with developers of video games and then share our conversations with you. Uh, I am David L. Craddock, Longreads editor at shacknews.com, and today I'm very excited to bring you my interview with Aubrey Hodges. Uh, you may know him primarily as the composer of the soundtrack and audio sound effects for a Doom PlayStation port and Doom 64, but he's also composed for a number of other games such as NFL Madden and NCAA football and tons of others that we get into. I'm bringing you this interview as an exclusive part of our Countdown to Doomsday event at Shack News, where if you go to the website all this week, you'll be getting exclusive Doom features as we count down the days to the release of Doom Eternal on March 20th. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Aubrey Hodges. I, I wonder, because I look behind you and I see a lot of guitars there, and I'm wondering, where, where, are, the, where are the cases? They've got to be around there somewhere. That's like a, a tenth of my collection. I, I don't know how many <laughs> guitars I have. Uh, I don't need as many anymore because with today's technology um, and just a couple of guitars, you can sound like almost any guitar. Um, but some of them are just hard to get or, or real special to me in one way or another. Um, the Doom theme was done on that Ibanez back there. Oh, wow. And so I keep that around. And uh, the Madden theme was done on this Brian Moore. And so, you know, for various reasons, I just keep the instruments, you know? Sure, yeah, there's a lot of memories attached to that. I, I completely understand. Um, I was going to say we can jump right into the interview, but I guess I already have, because I'm really fascinated by, by your uh, extracurricular projects as well. Oh, okay. But uh, now, hopefully I'm not reaching too much here, but you said that one of the aspects of home renovation you've found that you enjoy is is the puzzle aspect. And I kind of wonder if, if that could be related to what drew you to not just music, but music for games specifically, such as having to create a certain sound for a certain environment, mood, character, etc. Yeah, I mean, one. I think one of the reasons I've been very successful in general in the gaming space is that I'm a gamer, and not just a one-dimensional gamer where, oh, I do frag fests and I've got good twitch reflex, so I'm, I'm a gamer. <laughs> right. It's like, no, it's like, no, no, dude, I'm a gamer in every aspect of my life. I play D&D &D and 50 other tabletop games. I play MMOs. I LARP. <laughs> Everything. I'm a gamer. I like puzzling and and I like figuring things out and adapting and using strategy. It's just kind of how my mind works. And it, even when I write music, I um, I like to explore unique, different possibilities for things, um, which is sort of how the Doom thing, that's the new style I adapted for it, kind of happened. Because I was, you know, I was trying to be good and, and go with the old sort of feel for Doom, mm -hmm. but it was having difficult with the restrictions I had. I was having a difficult time making it sound badass enough, awesome enough, you know, to really be rock and roll. It almost sounded more humorous and, and more comical, yeah. um, like it was a parody of rock and roll. And, and that's a little bit of the criticism that some people who aren't a, really a fan of the original Doom stuff uh, used to level at it was that because of the MIDI and everything, which is not Bobby Prince's fault. Or, you know, no, it's, no. It's, it's 1993. What are you going to do? Yeah, because of that, it sounded almost funny rather than cool. Mm -hmm. And I was hitting the same damn walls that Bobby hit too on the PlayStation. Mm -hmm. So then I started experimenting with what could I do with 
the sounds that I actually had in the little memory. And as I was messing around with stuff, um, I, I discovered the symbol and kanji for the root key because I mm. didn't have an American version of the software yet because there wasn't one. Mm-hmm. So I was having to look at the kanji and, and symbols and figure out what that meant and then write a little lexicon. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and that was for the, the rune key, you said? Yeah, yeah, for root key. Oh, okay, got it, got it. And, and when you mess with that and took it way, way down, like in the negative numbers, like negative 12, negative 20, it just started making the sound sound so crazy. It sounded like my room was going to explode <laughs> like a volcano. And I'm like, man, this is creepy stuff. This is so weird. What is this? And and I discovered patterns where the more complex the sound was, as I lowered its root key, it was more fun and deliciously weird and scary. And so then I started developing kind of techniques to actually get results that I wanted, you know, as I lowered them. Um, and then, the, you know, the good news was that it, it was very cool to hear, and it was a, something I felt like could really lend some of the same emotional responses while playing the game that that the frenetic music did yeah so instead of pumping you up in terms of getting your adrenaline flowing because i'm pumping you up with that that nerve center that says go 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 Mm -hmm. pumping you up with nervousness and twitchiness and anxiety based on fear and the horror kind of genre approach um and it still made you feel the same way it still made you feel uneased and still made you feel nervous and twitchy and on edge and that was kind of the goal you know uh i I have to say um that you know i I love doom i've I've played the funny thing i tell people this is i i learned about doom from a friend in sunday school which i guess was apropos because we're sitting there whispering in the in the back of sunday school class and and hear my friends saying like hey here's a way to fight back against hell and i thought i thought it was hilarious hooked on the game love bobby prince's soundtrack but from the moment i played the doom port on playstation that version became my favorite version even more so than the pc and a huge reason for that was was your soundscape but the interesting thing is it almost sounds like that was a happy accident from how you're describing yeah kind of um i mean i always liked I, I i always liked the feel in synthesizers in the past of those weird sort of dystopian sounds and stuff like that and it always puzzled me that there wasn't a lot of that in gaming. I just figured, well, we can't do it because we're forced to use these little MIDI things and they don't really do that. <laughs> um, but it, it, it kind of was a bit of a happy accident. It's finding that sound that the little PlayStation chip could actually do that was tiny in memory because I only had about, there's a 500K area on the PlayStation, for example, for sound, and everything had to fit into that. Your sound driver, the MIDI file, the samples, and the, and the sound effects. So I only got about 180K for sounds uh, and um, for, for samples and the MIDI file, because I had to have some leftover for the sound effects. Right. And so that amount of memory, uh, I mean, that is minuscule. And so I had to sample at like 5K. <laughs> you know, and to get anything. And the interesting thing, thing is, if you sample at that at that uh, size, and and then you start lowering its bit rate, it starts artifacting and doing weird aliasing and doing just strange audio defects, really. <laughs> 
But when you run that through the high-end uh, reverb processor on the PlayStation, mm -hmm. it actually makes it almost sound like lo-fi hi-fi. <laughs> right. Because you got this crappy source, but it's going through this real high-end processor. And, uh, and it sounded delicious. It was like, wow, that sounds really purposeful and awesome. <laughs> uh, and then I started combining different reverbs. I forget there was eight or ten different ones with different kinds of sounds and seeing how they respond in different settings for the reverbs and it was fun man it was it was this it, it, the hard part though was that that the tech aside and the approach aside when you actually start doing the score and you writing writing in dark ambient music mm -hmm. um it's a very uh, emotional and dark um if evocation from you in terms of your psyche and your the mindset you have to be in to write like that, okay. um, it's dark. And so to really, almost in terms of how I approached it, I approached it almost like a method actor, where I, I really try to get into a dark mindset, and and you almost have to get some therapy every time you write a song afterwards, <laughs> you know, you're, because it's so dark and you're letting your emotions get in there and you're letting it sort of be permute you know just permutate every part of you and you're getting into these dark emotions and feelings and it kind of makes it a little tiring you know sure tiring. sure um but that's why each piece is so distinctive and unique because you just well yeah I, I, not everybody does but i throw myself into it um and uh, it's almost a sort of therapy composing therapy <laughs> you have to write a book on that and make some money <laughs> that's that's right we'll have to collaborate on it um the, the interesting thing to me is i noticed that there was kind of um a progression to the soundtrack in terms of how you laid it out such as you know this track for level one this track for level two uh level one's music i can't really describe it it'd just be me sounding like a like a like a dying cat because i can't make those sounds with my voice but it was a different level of creepy than say like five ten letter levels later where you're getting closer to hell and you hear what sounds like like babies crying and i just remember as I, it felt purposeful as you said it felt like as i was getting deeper into hell i the mindset my mindset changes it was it was disturbing and i'd never felt that playing doom before before i was just kind of concentrating on running around shooting everything that moved right well the difference is that the uh, previously, the music that you were hearing when you were playing the original Doom, that was clearly a soundtrack. That was clearly music that was being played while you were playing a game. Mm -hmm. And that gives you some nice energy, but it doesn't immerse you because it's not diegetic. You can't imagine that that music's actually in that place being played by what little imps or something. Right. <laughs> but but the, but what I did was combine some aspects of traditional musicality because there are some riffs and motifs and things with strings and other choral things that sort of weave themselves in and out, mm -hmm. which suggests a soundtrack somewhere out there in the ethos, out there in the distance. Right. But the other sounds feel like they could be there. You could. Th that's what you're hearing when you're there, and that makes them makes you come on edge too because your little hair pricks up because you're listening to these cues like the baby's crying. Going, what the hell? Are they, <laughs> are they torturing little children somewhere? You know. And so I tried to bring in these weird little cues that were almost as much sound sound effect and soundscape as they were score, um, and it creates a combination of 
score and diegetic soundscaping um, that mm-hmm. makes people feel like they're there and they're experiencing the hell that is the, the, the levels as they progress and stuff. That, that's fascinating. I wondered if you... So we, we've talked about working on the PlayStation, of course. Uh, I actually think my first brush with your soundscape, now that I think about it, for Doom, was Doom 64. Uh, I played the PlayStation port later, and it was only then that I realized, oh, Aubrey Hodges created the sounds for this version first. So with with Doom 64, did you... I mean, that game was, was even darker than the Doom port. You know, um, the company Williams was able to kind of go with their own way in terms of art style. Did you feel almost that Doom 64 visually was a was a better pairing for the sound that you'd created? Um, not... Not maybe better, but um, maybe a little bit more of a natural fit. Sure. Uh, I mean, more harmonious, almost. Right. It just it helped me get you deeply immersed because they, you know, the the extra lighting and all of that really helped as well. And it was uh, the way that they handled textures and everything was smoother. Um, And so it just seemed it just seemed a more high end feel to me. and uh, and what's interesting was one of the tricks that I was able to do um, was because of the way that the memory worked on the 64, um, the all of the sounds were basically in one giant pool, mm-hmm. rather than having to be loaded in individually in little packets, little tiny pools. It was one bigger pool with mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. So I was able to make lots and lots of different little samples that could be used on all the songs um, and then just very carefully kind of curate and pick and choose when and which part of the sample I would use and stuff like that so that it wasn't it didn't become homogenous and just one big blended sound mm-hmm. each you know each level needed to be unique but it still let me even even use sound effects as musical instruments per se mm-hmm. which is cool so in some cases like I took the plasma gun it's I forget which song it's in but it's in one of them and it's just being played so low, you know, because it kind of goes. You know, right. and now it's going. And man, it's taking forever. And I'm like, damn, that is wicked cool. And it didn't cost any memory at all. So I'm like, I, oh. I love that about the Nintendo 64. And that, and but the, the the 64, it was a bit of a darker theme and a darker feel, and it let me just even take the whole thing a little bit further. Um, it, and I, I would have done more on it if, if there was just enough room, but there there wasn't. You know, the cartridge-based system was pretty limited. That That is actually something I wanted to delve into more with you. Um, I, I didn't think uh, it was probably this way, but p- part of me wondered, well, since Doom 64 used the same soundtrack, quote-unquote, was it a matter of you saying, oh, well, the soundtrack's already done. I can just rearrange a few things, and here you go. I mean, how, how much of a process was it to take what you'd done for the PS1 port and, and kind of... Scape it, scope it for the Nintendo 64. Uh, it was uh, it was basically conceptually the same, um, but it was a different tool set. Um, it had different different memory constraints, which were pretty heavy, um, and so I had to sort of adapt my my technique quite a bit to make it work for the Nintendo. Um, and then and then. Even its even its uh, reverb unit was different. Everything was different, so I was able to approach it sort of conceptually the same, 
and and I had that in my back pocket like okay this I know this kind of works let me see if I can make this machine do kind of the magic that the other did um, and it was a more difficult process because of the way the reverb worked and um, and having a very very limited pool to stick everything mm-hmm. I think all the sounds and music all of it fit into one meg wow one meg and so had to be very selective and very careful um, even the sounds and the sound effects I had to sort of slightly shorten them all rather than just gut a few mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just look, like take all the reverb tails off of the actual sound and use the Nintendo's built in one okay. and stuff like that and it was um, ah, the right word tedious <laughs> it was tedious um I, I just went and did all that tedious work kind of first so that it wouldn't spoil my the artistic part of it when I got to that. Yeah. So I just did the stupid crap that no one wants to do first and got it all <laughs> out of the way and got all of those sounds to fit and got that working and then got reverb working and then and then went and did this and then approached this the the songs with like, okay, let me get one or two really interesting flavors made just for this song. And then I'll add whatever else is left, but I got to make sure it all fits in memory. And then I had to figure out how many levels we were going to do and how many songs that meant I could do. And, oh, that wasn't very fun. <laughs> but, but then once I got into the actual, okay, the sounds are in, the instruments are ready, they're loaded. I kind of know what I want to do. Uh, at that point, I was able to uh, just be creative with what I had. Mm-hmm. See, see, that's the thing, and I'll tell you, it's funny, one little aside to all the musicians and composers that sure. are wanting to get in the industry and all of that, you know, the biggest problem I see with younger composers today is they have too much at their fingertips. They have too much choice, and it paralyzes them. Yes. Too much choice is a bad thing. Um, it's it's It just absolutely cripples people. They go to work uh, on a song, and they pull up their little sample of what they could do, and they've got 820 different synthesizers and 50 different samplers, and then in each one they've got 600 bass sounds and 5,000 drum sets, and it's like, just for fuck's sake, pick one and write. <laughs> pick one and go. And don't look over your shoulder, constantly criticizing and tweaking your work to death. Move forward, not backwards. And <laughs> So people are trying to compose with their damn head like this. You know, they're looking over their shoulder while they're doubting every move they make. Yeah. I've never doubted a damn choice I've made in my entire career. <laughs> on record. I just pick one. I go, oh, that's a nice tasty bass. I'll use that. You know? Yeah. I grab a guitar, pull up a sound that sounds cool, and go, ooh, that's tasty. Let's write a song with that. <laughs> and and then I just move forward, and I get the song done, and... And then maybe on the next one I go, oh, I used my Ibanez on that song. Maybe I'll use the Brian Moore on this one. Let's see what that feels like. And then I'll write a song with that. But people just get so worried that there's a right and a wrong choice. There isn't. Right. There's there's the choice you make. You know, I, I'm so glad you said that. Uh, anecdotally, as a writer, I have people say, oh, what, what program should I use to write? And I'm thinking, like, that's really, like, the least important 
decision or question you should ask like like you know a lot of people love this program called scrivener it lets you organize your outlines and notes but then i'll hear someone say oh i i was traveling i had my laptop but i didn't install scrivener so i couldn't write i'm like seriously <laughs> this is why like I, I use word or open office or google docs because it's just a blank screen with a cursor that should be all you need just go you know i, I, would, I, I kid you not um one of my close friends is uh, bob salvatore the uh, fantasy writer yeah uh, all right he goes by all oh I, no i've talked to him a couple times i know him yeah, as well yeah, he's such yeah. A, isn't that accent funny yeah <laughs> <laughs> you never think of him with an accent but yeah okay. yeah um but the funny thing is he used to come in he liked to listen to me write when i was doing the the big mmo for kirk Schilling, and he liked to hear the, com- the kind of composing process going on while he wrote on his laptop and I would think you'd have some crazy program too. And I went over that thing. He was using Notepad and working patterns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know what? He's he's the perfect example, right? Because he worked in a factory before his writing took off. And and Bob is one guy I consider, and I mean this in in the most complimentary of ways, because I consider myself the same thing. He's what I describe as a blue collar creative. He just gets in there and he works. He's not looking for. He's not waiting on the muse to show up. There is no muse. Just work. Just just do it. Yeah, he just goes. Yeah. yeah. But I was fascinating that he didn't have any great jobs. Yeah. And, and people ask me, what doll do you use? And I'm like, honestly, almost all of them. Uh, sure. Depends on my mood. I, I, the other day I was messing around in acid just because I felt like it because they released a new version of it. I want to see what it was like. And I had my days with Cubase and with Cakewalk and Sonar. And I use a lot of Logic, of course. And although when Apple bought them, I, it pissed me off. <laughs> Quit making it on PC, and now I gotta buy these expensive Mac products. Yeah, but you know, it's uh, it's not about the tool. No, it's about you and whatever tool you've got. I've heard some badass music come off some cheesy crap. <laughs> right, it's what, it's what they've got. You know, some kid and his little, he's got a little, you know, Alpha Juna keyboard, and he's got some little tiny doll, this little sequencer. But man, he's using that stuff and uh, so I don't know for me that because I think that way when I got my hands on the sound delicatessen for Sony and, and the other little tool for the Nintendo I just used what I had that's the tool I had in front of me so I'm going to make it work and that's kind of the way the game industry worked especially back then right like a lot of the the most creative games and solutions came out of working on either a shoestring budget or just with like two or three resources you almost have to just macgyver everything yeah dude it's, <laughs> it, it's not to mention i mean i came from the the era where the sound guy was the musician was the implementer was the tester you just everything you did it all yourself the right voiceover, but nowadays it's you know it's like a movie set you've got 50 guys doing this and 50 guys doing that and and they're so spoiled they don't they don't even have a clue how, how <laughs> they have it yeah because they, they don't have all the worries of it all but the funny thing is the worry of having to do it all made me forced me to be a very decisive creative mm-hmm. I make the decision I move forward a decisions made we don't go back because the game's got to get done and I'm looking at this you know the schedule of milestones and going damn that's coming up I better go yeah and now you know if you've got a couple of years or whatever to work on this game and you're only doing you know ambient sound 
Well, you can kind of get lost in the process a little and let the process own you rather than you own it. Sure. And I think that that happens. And then it's like I said with the writing, with all the equipment and all the uh, different ways of doing things, um, 50,000 ways to skin the cat, the cat never gets skinned. Yes. Well, completely agree that you know it's it's funny. I'm glad you mentioned that because earlier when you said, you know, you've now you've never doubted a decision in your life. At first, I was wondering, well, is that just confidence in in his in his work and his abilities? Or and then as you talked, I said, you know what? I bet it's just you don't have time to second and and third and fourth guess yourself. You'd have to just move forward. That's right, and it's not even confidence in myself. It's confidence in understanding how to separate what's important and what isn't important. Um, and younger composers don't understand that. It's not, I can, you could do something incredibly intricate, amazingly detailed, and it absolutely be the worst thing you could possibly do for a game at the moment that it needs to be used in the game. You see? Yes, yes. Because cause maybe in that moment, it really needed underscore. It doesn't need to be, look at me, I'm a good composer. See, I'm as good as the movie guys. Listen to all my crazy shit I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, no, you don't need that stuff. What you need is to understand the emotional connection that the player is trying to is going to be making at that point in the game. What do the designers of the game want the emotional connection to be at that moment in the gameplay? Mm-hmm. And that's what your responsibility as a composer is, is to meet and find out. What what should they be feeling right now? So that's kind of how I wondered. I wonder if you could answer this with, with PlayStation Doom, which was, you know, working with material that had already been out for a couple years, uh, and Doom 64. When you were composing, did you, did you look at levels? I mean, you're a gamer, so you're probably playing the game. But Doom 64, I imagine, was a little different because, again, that wasn't a port. That was being created whole cloth, maybe in parallel to you creating the soundtrack for it. How did those processes work? Where did you work from? On the PlayStation, I basically sort of wrote music um, in, in these environments that that have sort of differing degrees of evil and, and twistedness to them. Um, and I kind of classified them loosely um, as sort of, okay, these are dark, but you're not in the bowels of hell yet. The, these are dark in a, the environment has just been... Um, ruined like the, the command center and all that where you hear all the neat beeps and bloops and stuff or whatever and that are sort of interwoven in it right. but, you, but you also hear that it's been fouled and ruined mm-hmm. and then to places that were in and of themselves like hell the hell levels and all that stuff those are innately evil and so those come at you from a different even more twisted place like with the crying babies and things like that right um and then, once I did that, I kind of understood what music uh, fit generally, what kinds of levels. And then we had to do this memory exercise where we would look at how big the actual level is that needed to stream in, and then um, how big the memory was uh, for the uh, reverb that you did, because each one had a different size. Like the big space reverb was kind of like 65K, which mm-hmm. is pretty big. But the little pipe reverb was 8K. Ooh. So it was like, mm, okay, the pipe reverb, we'll have to use that in this level. So we had to almost pick which reverb could go. Right. Um, and, and then which MIDI file, how long was the piece? 
also fit into memory. So we had to look at the level and the reverb and the MIDI file and figure out which one of, say, six or seven pieces that were of the flavor we wanted could fit. And that's actually how we picked the levels. It's, it's ridiculous, I know, but <laughs> it, it's the only way we could fit all the music and get it all heard and have the levels uh, load correctly. Now, when you say that's how we picked the levels, do you mean that's how we picked the levels to include in the port or how we matched the music to how the levels? How we matched music okay. to the levels. Got it. Okay. We had some basic you know, buckets of about six or seven pieces that could be used for the different various degrees, mm-hmm. and then we had to figure out which one of those fit size-wise. Got it. So, Got it. Crazy. Not fun to do it that way. There was a handful of cases where I would have much... I would have picked a different piece, mm-hmm. but um, couldn't do it. Wouldn't fit. Now, what about that? Was for the PlayStation, correct? For the Nintendo, for the Nintendo, it was different because it was all the memory was being all the uh, the data was there at all times. Okay. So that was way more fun because I could just write specifically for the level and, and not worry that it would fit. Got it. Um, I, I was curious. You you sound like you had uh, you had and continue to have um, a grasp on the technical side of of you know gaming hardware that you were working with as a musician. I know that um, I believe Scott Patterson did some. Yeah, Scott was, Scott was awesome. Yeah, I, I wondered if you could tell me about the collaboration with with him. What that entailed? Oh man, he was he, you know he set two doors down for me, and um, at the time I was the um, the manager of the entire audio department, so. He was writing the software that drove all this stuff on our on our side of things. Mm-hmm. There's the stuff that Nintendo gave us, and then there's the stuff that needed to happen from our our way of making the game to that stuff and our connection to it. Mm-hmm. And so Scott and I were, um, you know, working all the time together on making sure all of this played and worked and didn't have technical glitches and. You know, we had the same problems everyone has at first, the little technical things where you get clicks and glitches in this playback and <laughs> missing voices and MIDI overrun and stuck notes and just, you know, the, the stuff you get when you're making a brand new system. Sure. And um, and then there was the issue of, you know, how I interfaced with it and, and what I could and couldn't do. I wanted to make sure I had it right because all of our instructions and everything were set in Japanese, <laughs> uh, which I don't write, learn. I, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't understand, so I didn't know what to do with it. So it was nice working with a guy who was very technical, but also kind of understood what, where I was coming from as, an, as a composer and as an artist, um, and made sure that you know, I knew what the rules were, how many note polyphony did I have, and how much memory did I really have? Because there's a difference in what Nintendo says, for example, you have available, or what my, uh, what Sony says you have available, and what you can actually use once the drivers are all in and working. Sure. And, and I, you know, don't think <laughs> about that. But then when you got a programmer like Scott telling you, then you do. You're like, okay, <laughs> I can't do what I thought I could do. But yeah, it was it was cool. It was a good relationship with him and with the whole team. They were very. It was a fun thing to work on, and and it was a very. Um, meaningful project because it had already had such a big following and everybody loved it so we knew there were going to be a lot of eyes on it you know and ears on it mm-hmm. and we wanted to make sure that what we were doing was was going to be received well and that people would enjoy it especially since i was taking it into such a different direction yeah it, it, it's interesting how bobby prince kind of sowed some seeds like most of most of doom soundtrack is is like action action focus but then you'll have those levels like i don't know if you remember um 
the second episode, the sixth map is Halls of the Damned, which has this kind of slower, creepy theme. And I remember listening to your soundtrack. I'm like, you know, I almost see how like this isn't completely. This isn't like the opposite side of a, a coin. There was almost like this seems a natural direction for Doom to go in. Yeah, you know, and it's <laughs> it's hard to say how it would have gone if if I tried to go into the more the direction of the, the bigger music. But yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a darkness to doom, you know, a, a, there's, there's, there's almost like two aspects of the darkness to it. There's the, the hell that wants to rise up and crush and destroy. And then there's the darkness of the violence that you have to enact like a one man <laughs> wrecking crew yeah. on that hell to smash it down. And, <laughs> And so I think his gut instinct was to, or whoever directed him, was to push the, you're the wrecking crew, you're a badass, right. push that, rather than the very hell that, that is seeking to rise up and overcome everything. Um, so I tried to sort of blend the two a little bit, you know, and bring, bring that darker <laughs> forebodingness up out of it. But yeah, I mean, it's not way out of character. Um, sure. Suggests that it could have gone that way, and a little more had he had time to develop it. Sure, and it's interesting. Like now that I think about it, the the composers of Doom are almost this three headed Hydra, where the heads are they're different heads, but they're part of the same body. You know, you have Bobby Prince who composed the original soundtrack. There's you who steered uh, right into the horror direction, and then now there's Mick Gordon who did you know Doom 2016 and Doom Eternal, which is this really heavy rock and roll kind of playing that as you said, like the Doom the Doom guy. Now he's the Doom Slayer. Is this badass? So we're going to lean into this like really badass rocking soundtrack. Have you heard the the soundtrack to the new Doom games. I mean, what do you think of mix work? It's good. Um, it's good. You know, it is definitely more like the traditional approach and bringing out more of that original kind of badass flavor. Um, and it has a bit of a a nod to kind of almost the Nine Inch Nails Art of Noise thing. Going. Sure. So I think it's it's, it's pretty good. You know. Um, the game is a different game now, and um, and I think it, you know, given what the game is and what it turned into, it, it's pretty cool. Right. I probably would have done maybe more of a hybrid where I, I, I brought some of that bigger stuff in at certain key moments and times, and maybe done a more adaptive soundtrack. Probably mm -hmm. is how I would have done it, where as you got into the fights and as the fight became more heavy, bring some of that stuff in to just accentuate the poundingness of what you're doing. Right. And then, uh, and then as you backed away and were skulking around, brought it back into a more dark ambient, because you can do that stuff now. Back, right. back when I was doing it, you really couldn't do it. Um, maybe that's how I would approach it. But generally, I think you did great. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool how Doom is almost this this shared universe, not unlike the Forgotten Realms in which Bob writes, of course, where yeah, like yeah. these different composers, designers, programmers can say like, well, I know what Doom is, but here's how, how we might do it. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm just happy to see people still playing it after all these years. Yeah, I mean, wh what do you think about, uh, you know, on March 20th when Doom Eternal comes out, Doom 64 will be re-released as well. What are your feelings on that? I think it's it's kind of cool. It's gonna it's probably gonna have a, a, a dual audience. Like on the one hand, you're gonna have the the Doom fanatics that have stayed with with it for all of these years that just love the fact that it's out again. 
but now you're going to get a new audience too. You're going to get all the younger people that really didn't play it back then, and uh, and that's going to be interesting to see their reaction to, you know, to that work because it's still playable. I I was I was on it not long ago, just to get. Um, I was doing some comparative analysis to the original sound coming off its output mm-hmm. to what my masters were mm-hmm. and what how I needed to remaster the masters. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then I got caught up in playing the game and realized I'm just as bad as it now as I was then. <laughs> it's hard. It it is hard. It is hard. It's the, a different sort of controllers are wonky. I never got used to those things. I know, I know. They seemed especially back in the N sixty four and GameCube days, you take a look at that controller and you're like, Man, this is either gonna work or it's not going to work at all. Some people love it and some people like me never quite got it. I right. Just couldn't quite get the feel of it. It just felt too mushy to me. Sure, sure. So I, I, I wondered if we could talk a little bit more about um, process for either, well, maybe for the, the PlayStation Doom, because that's where you were you know, creating all of this from, from scratch. Um, I would never ask you to pick a favorite song, because as a creative, I know that's like picking one of your children. So maybe if, if there's a song when you think of Doom that comes to mind, or maybe a certain like bar or riff of a song, could you talk a little bit about the process as you were Remember it of how it came together, the sorts of sounds you chose, and, and kind of just how you sewed everything together. Okay, I think some of this has to do with how how I make music. Um, at the time, I was really just starting to get serious with my cello playing. You know, mm-hmm. I play a lot of different instruments, and mm-hmm. the cello at the time was just one that was. Um, making me inspired. It has the deep, rich, you know, t- timbre that it just it, it is exciting to hear in just about any music. And at the very same time, I was getting kind of getting into that. Some of the movies and some of the music coming out of the, at the time period, like uh, like Dracula, that Bram Stoker's Dracula, and all that, had that deep, rich instrumental, you know, ostinato kind of feeling in the orchestra and I thought man I love that tone that tone is so cool meanwhile I had just gotten my Ibanez and it's just you know and it's pickups and everything were just meaner almost designed for heavy metal it just has a big fat chunky sound when you run it through an ice amp and um, and it kind of reminded me of the cello a little bit it's hard to explain like when you're playing single notes it was like man it almost has the timbre of a cello but it's just rock and roll um so then comes time to make the Doom theme. And then I remember, you know, all the stuff that's done previous, and I thought, how am I going to get, because I'd already done sort of the dark ambient stuff was already sort of fomenting at that time. Right. Um, how do I blend the darkness of this crazy weird stuff, this textural-based stuff, with an, an actual theme? Right. And then, I, and then I start thinking in terms of, like, uh playing riffs that just feel like they played into that. That's where you get the you know, right. that's a cool riff, and but it's not as cool if I'm not, if I don't blend the textures, if it's just straight orchestra, it felt cool, but too much in a movie way. If it's just rock, it felt cool, but too much in a heavy metal way. So blending where I'm just getting the, you know, the with the strings, and then you hear the low end coming in, going, and building up with the guitar just going, bam, smack in the face. 
that was the nice blend that, that felt good to me. Like, okay, let's just blend some genres there, which I'd done in past work, like in Quest for Glory years ago. I blended the sort of Transylvanian kind of you know Middle East uh, Middle Eastern stuff and, and far uh, like and then the the stuff like in Russia and all of that area with rock and roll at the same time to do a similar thing mm-hmm. and, so, and that was sort of fresh in my mind too that the idea that you could just blend these styles and then make a new style the doom style um, and and that's kind of what I tried to do and then I would bring in hints of technology to feel a little more futuristic sure um, so in the main theme that's just kind of that that main theme sort of set the tone for the blending of styles and the darkness of the key I think it's in uh, C minor yeah, C minor, uh, which is it just feels suitably dark, um, and then following on from that, I guess in terms of the ambient scary stuff, probably Lamentation, which is the one that has the crying babies, that has a similar flavor where I'm swimming around in sort of that um, low mid sort of EQ texture, that that cello slash almost bass range of notes. Um, that just feel delicious, especially when you add a little reverb. And then you throw in these weird little things way over the top in the higher range. It just makes this juxtaposition just unnerving. And then you add these actual real sounds in and use them almost like a musical instrument, like the, the hint of crying babies. Right. We, right. <laughs> we hit at it, and it just makes your hair stand up. And it feels stylistically in the realm in the same genre and realm of where the theme was um when i originally did it there were so many time constraints and sample constraints and other things that i couldn't really make the theme as big and awesome as i wanted but i got it enough you know i i I got to a point where i'm like okay that's really pretty cool and i have a deadline move it on and that's just kind of <laughs> and so going back after 20 years like I did the, uh, the Doom 20th anniversary edition soundtrack and, and then the Doom 64 uh, soundtrack as well mm-hmm. gave me an opportunity to re-hit those things with a little more modern uh, modern gear and with some real instruments I actually used my trumpet in that and you know mm-hmm. my cello and uh, right cello. right <laughs> gotta bring yeah, the cello gotta, back yeah let me let me really put it in there now I'm a way better cello player uh, I, I was curious. I, I don't want to misuse the term foley work because I know it's often associated. It, it's often boiled down to its to its simple parts of like, oh, I'm, I'm tapping a pencil against a desk or I'm dropping a watermelon. But for things like, I, I loved the grunts and the growls of the enemies. I thought that added to the the horror ambiance as well because you know you can hear the doom monsters while they're hunting you, and the, yeah. these growls and grunts getting closer. How did you how did you make those sounds? Um. That started with a Taco Bell cup. Oh. <laughs> um, I was I was out with some friends uh, from the audio department, and we, we went on Taco Bell, or Taco Hell, as I used to call it. Yeah, yeah. And I, they had some special where they had this giant, it was the biggest cup I have ever seen in my life. I swear to God that the, the top of it was like, was like this. It was just <laughs> huge. And I was like, God, that is the biggest cup. So... I had to have it, and I got it, I used it for like Mountain Dew, but towards the end, it was such a big cup as I had had it up to my mouth, I was talking to somebody, it echoed in there, and I thought, oh my God, you can do some fun stuff with this cup, (laughs) 
And so I emptied it when I got back to the studio. I'm like, hey, hey, hit the mic, turn the mic, come see what I can do with this thing. And I started, you know, just taking the cup, you know, I'm going. Whoa, yeah. yeah. And it's like, wow, you can do crazy stuff with a cup. And then I started running all that stuff after it was recorded through different effects. And it was like, man, these are these are cool. And I just started sort of trying different things and, try, and, and making a big, a bunch of like buckets of weird sounds through different weird effects. And then figuring out which monsters that I thought it belonged to best. Oh, got that's it. Kind of, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. And you know, kind of on a similar note, uh, you know, Doom's weapons were iconic by that time. I think everyone's favorite was the shotgun. It had such a powerful sound. Were you thinking about kind of the expectations for okay, we're redoing all these weapon sounds. What should this feel like? It needs to be awesome because pe people love this gun. I had to make sure. Um, and one one tricky thing was that I had to make sure every sound was was not the original sound because uh, Bobby and Id were having they were on the outs and they were in court over whatever. Mm. Yeah, I mean I don't even know all the situation about it. I just ignored that part. I I, I like him and and I like Id and I don't want to get in the middle of that. Sure, sure. Um, but they made it clear to me. I had to document every single thing that I did. Where did I get the sound? Did I get it start at a library? Did I go shoot it? Do I have the recording to prove I went and shot the guns? You know, all, all of that. So that made it challenging. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that I had enough of something that felt iconic. Like in the shotgun, it was the, it was the you know, making sure that that was there. Right. In a form that had the right cadence, because it doesn't always go Sometimes it goes Sometimes it goes, you know? Yeah. But I wanted to make sure the cadence was right because that's what people were used to. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we, I just sort of looked at it like, okay, let me do every sound as close as I can in, in, in the spirit of the original game, but my own take on it, you know? Got it. Especially, and the hard part was the sampling rate. I had to pick and choose which things were going to be 11K or 5K or 8K, you know, because the size restraints were a nightmare. And a handful, maybe the um, maybe about fifteen I I sounds or so. The weapons being one of the categories had like eighteen k or fifteen k, something where you had some detail. Mm -hmm. And that's and but and then the booms that you the, the actual explosions after you did it. I just couldn't afford the the remember anymore, so I had to go back down to like six k or five k. <laughs> So it was an interesting combination because of what it did is it accentuated certain sounds because the detail was there. And so your, your ear picked up on them more naturally and it, and it diffused other sounds. For example, when you're shooting the, the rocket launcher, you get that, you know, right off the beginning, it feels really high end and nice. But when it hits, it kind of just goes, you know, it's right, right, right. but that's cool because you can really go to town with that and have a lot of them triggered real quick and I didn't want it to be overwhelming so there were some interesting nice things that happened because of my own limitations and having to f fit into RAM um, but I tried to pick and choose you know which sounds needed the high-end treatment and uh, it was mostly weapon sounds and a handful of things you heard a lot like the door opening got it yeah right those those sounds that you're going to be hearing over and over and over you don't want them to be grading but you kind of want them to almost kind of blend in with everything else be kind of familiar and yeah yeah you have to because you you hear them so much and the little pickup <laughs> sound the little 
the resound you know it's, right, that, that right. has to be good because you hear a billion you a trillion times a match you're always hearing that so you know I, it was interesting i i don't know how it would feel now not having those restrictions because it's what i dealt it's the world i was dealing in right uh, and i just wanted to make it sound as cool as i could and and make the right trade-offs so that it uh, it felt fun to play but that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where if you were doing that today and you had all these choices, you might kind of stymie yourself. Whereas back then you had your restrictions, you worked within it, and you came up with something cool and creative, right? That's it. Um, you just had what you had. Even even something as simple as the, the guitar sound in, in Doom, you know, the big, you know, themed guitar. I had a Marshall preamp. I had a microphone and a dream. <laughs> and I just stuck it in front of that thing and hit it and went and, and, and there it is it's the Marshall you know stack sound and because I didn't have any other stuff at the time I, there wasn't you know I hadn't got some of this other gear that I could run through 50 different uh, versions of stuff right and and even the, the, the new sort of digital amps that, that are out that you can emulate all these things they didn't exist yet Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge factor. Yeah. There, there wasn't any of those. Even Pro Tools hadn't had one of those yet. Amplitude or whatever it was came out years later. So, you know, what did I have? Well, I had a Marshall stack, so that's the sound it's going to be. Um, and, and you know, it, it was, um, in terms of making traditional music like the theme back then, it was a way more complicated proposition than it is today. It wasn't all software-based. It was hardware-based and you know, and it was very tedious and time-consuming to do it. And, and um, today, you know, the, and, and that's that's one of the reasons I always harp on younger composers about, look, yeah, sure, there's all these neat software instruments and things you can get now. Yeah. Get one or two of them. Get three or four even if you're indulgent. And then learn the hell out of them and get every dollar out of those things. Don't go buying everyone that comes out on Facebook with an ad. Or you're going to be buying them till the end of time because they're going to keep making them. <laughs> right. I mean, even this one that I love, you know, the like, Ant Farm and all these other ones, they're cool, but you don't need to constantly get the new one that comes out just because the new one is out. That's a very strange kind of consumer culture mindset that can really crush you creatively because you'll end up looking at your laptop and realize, you know, when it does a plug-in count, that you've got 747 plugins. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do with all that? <laughs> I mean, I, I have, I have too much already, and I know that I do, so I limit it. Um, I just don't even go there. I, I put like the top 15 or 20 instrument plugins that I use on a regular basis up at the top of the queue in in my sampler, and those are the ones I hit all the time. And then I make templates. Of different styles of music I like to work in I open the template and I just start writing with whatever the hell I pick and what's up there well this is kind of uh, as we wrap up I, I want to harken back to something we discussed earlier you know I mentioned doom 64 is is going to be re-released I think it's uh, just two weeks from today uh, roughly yeah and I, and I kind of wondered um, you you said it you put it great um, that there's there are longtime fans like me who are gonna be replaying it again 
Uh, and then there are there's a new audience waiting to experience what what Doom was through your interpretation, through Midway's interpretation. So when you look back on this on this project, kind of the soundtrack, Doom PSX and Doom sixty four as a whole, what does that project mean to you? I mean, you've done so many so many soundtracks, so much audio in your career. Where does this one kind of uh, fit for you and what you've worked on? Uh, it's it's a very very special place because it it was it was it was humbling and and very fulfilling that id and and midway believed in me and let me let me be creative for them not yeah. just do a job for them but really let me be creative and take them in a very maybe risky direction right um and they were great people and gave me a lot of freedom to just explore as an artist and that, that always feels fantastic. And the fact that the fans reacted so well to it, I mean, here we are 20 some years later and I'm still getting email about it and all that stuff. It's, and I take that seriously. If somebody's going to take the time to, to write me or to tell me what they liked about it, I'll respond if I can. Uh, and it, it's just nice to know that it, it means that it meant something to so many people, you know, um, and it was a chance for me to really be creative and try try things that were maybe had never been done before and have it work. And so it's just that nice sort of feeling you get when you have a an idea that you could do something and then you're not sure how you're going to do it. So you try, you get some support from some people and they encourage you and, and, and then it works. Yeah. And, and then it has the result everyone intended where people hear it and go, wow, this is new and different and we like it. Um, and it, it's interesting because, because it, and I didn't intend this, it just happened because it doesn't cleanly, neatly fit into any particular fad or style it's lasted all these years and it still feels great and doesn't even feel dated at all because it's not trying to be a style it's just sort of sitting wherever it sits in its own little pocket um i mean i've had the chance to develop the full feeling for things like on dragon veil for example for hasbro and backflip that's its own feel too and that and that was cool but it wasn't as dangerous i didn't take it like doing what i did on doom was a very um risky move and I'm kind of just glad I made it you know it feels good to take the risk and not always play it safe you know I think absolutely I agree well thank you very much for for talking to me today I, I said at the top and I sincerely mean this uh your work on those games is is some of my favorite in-game music and in music at all so uh your soundtrack means a lot to me and it was a real honor and privilege getting to talk to you today oh you too you seem like a really great guy and uh, and i love uh, talking to other people about you know doom particularly it's just a great game <laughs> it's, it's, it's just lasted so long you know you hit the nail on the head i am a great guy no i'm just kidding no doom is a great <laughs> doom is a great game and uh thank you very much for your time Oh, and by the way, yep. I am working on a 20th anniversary uh, version of Final Doom now. Ooh, I, I love that too. Plutonia experiments, uh, in particular, some of my favorite Doom levels. So that's really cool. What? Uh, how? How? Uh, I don't know how much you can talk about that, but kind of where is that in the process, and when should we look for it? Uh, I think I'm about 80, percent and I'm hoping that probably. I'm thinking. 
I'm thinking a May delivery is probably what's really going to happen. Um, quite a few new bonus songs. I'm extending the length of all the other songs from, you know, some of their links are on four or five minutes. Now they're all like 12, 14, 15 minutes. Mm. I'm adding new sections in the same style and the same, you know, uh, technique. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty fun. I've forgotten some of this music. You know, it's nice to go back to it here and go, oh, wow, I remember when I did that. That's weird stuff. <laughs> what am I going to do here? Right, right. But as usual, it'll be at my AubreyHodges.Bandcamp site, and it'll be on Amazon and iTunes and all the rest. So Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to make a note of it, and uh, I may just have to release this conversation in full because I think it was really interesting. I think people will will get a lot out of it, especially these these younger composers who are maybe looking for some some guidance from the veterans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the number one thing, of course, always is um, understand what needs to happen to make the thing that you're doing successful, not to make you sound like a badass musician. You know, that's the key, and um, and it's a it's a it's understandable. People want to, you know, put their best foot forward. But games is a tricky business, man. Um, games are unique because unlike linear stuff, um, you're going to get exposed to what you're doing a lot. So one bad move can really crucify a game. Yeah. A movie, you could have a bad little section. It's fine. It'll only last a few seconds, and you'll never hear it again. You know. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> bad notes or a bad decision in a movie, yeah, no big deal. A few bad notes in your music that's going to keep looping or sound effects that are going to keep playing often are going to make people want to hunt you down and, and kick you in the nuts. You know? <laughs> or tie you to a chair and make you listen to it over and over like they have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you again for your time, Aubrey. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, me too, man. Take care. You too. <laughs>